ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio. Rock Chalk Jayhawk, Bill Self in the Kansas Jayhawks. Get it done against the Carolina Tar Heels in the national championship game last night, beating them 72-69 to after pulling off the largest comeback in national championship game history, being down 15 at halftime, as many as 16 in the game, and actually finding a way to win. So why isn't that the comeback that we're leading off our show with? Because we got to talk about a tiger that's on the prowl in Augusta. You're listening to ESPN Radio on the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, and ESPN+. Plus. I am Chris Canny. She is Amber Wilson, and we are presented by Progressive Insurance. Hit us up on Twitter at AmberW790 and at ChrisCanny99. And as always, tap in on the Canny call-in line, 888-SAY-ESPN. That's 888-729-3776. And Amber, coming into this week... Tiger Woods said it would be a game-time decision whether or not he would play in the Masters this weekend. Well, it seems like it's trending in the right direction because Tiger Woods came out and said today that he is intending on playing in the Masters starting to starting on Thursday, and he's in a group, a pairing with Louis Oosthuizen, and I believe it is Joaquin Neiman. They are teeing off at 10.34 a.m., on Thursday morning down at Augusta National in the golf world. Check that. The sports world is ablaze with Tiger Wood potentially being back on the course 14 months after that horrific accident that nearly took away the use of his right leg. That's what's so incredible about this is that we're about a year removed from doctors deciding whether to amputate Tiger Woods' left leg or not. And just a short time later in the grand scheme of life here, we're talking about Tiger Woods competing at a Masters. Nevertheless, just playing a round of 18 at Augusta. I mean, that in and of itself, Chris, would be impressive, frankly. When I heard that he had taken the PJ up there with his son and that he was playing the course, I was already impressed by Tiger. We knew that he had become a bit of a weekend warrior of late. He said that's the easy part. I'm not sure that most of us would agree who tried our hand at golf in the past, but for Tiger Woods, being a weekend warrior was the easy part. Actually competing, though, as a professional athlete, a year removed from what he went through is remarkable. Absolutely one of the best comebacks. I don't want to take anything away from that comeback last night, a historic comeback for Kansas, but this is the comeback that had to lead off the show today. A remarkable feat from Tiger Woods, and he hasn't even done it yet. No, he hasn't, and a lot of people are speculating about what version of Tiger Woods we're going to see, and Amber, I don't think that really matters in this situation. Just given the gravity of what he's had to deal with over the past year, since the, you know, in the initial aftermath of the accident after multiple surgeries, this is a guy that didn't leave the hospital bed for three months. And for him, 14 months after that accident, all of those reconstructive surgeries on his right leg to have an opportunity to play in the Masters, I think that's a tribute to his sports character, his mental fortitude, his mental toughness. And I think it's a win for not only golf, but for sports in general to have Tiger Woods a part of the landscape. But let's listen to Tiger Woods about what he expects to see from himself this weekend down in Augusta. Well, I love competing. 
and I, I feel like if I can still compete at the highest level, I'm going to. And if I feel like I can still win, I'm going to play. But if I feel like I can't, then you won't see me out here. Uh, you guys know me, know me better than that. And as Dee asked earlier, I don't show up to an event unless I think I can win it. So uh, that's the attitude I've had. And um, there will be a day when it won't happen. And I'll know when that is. Um, but physically, the challenge this week is I don't have to worry about the, the ball striking or the, the game of golf. It's actually just the hills out here. Um, that's going to be the challenge, and it's going to be a challenge of, of a major marathon. It's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. And, Amber, you mentioned it, the weekend warriors, the people out there that are weekend hackers that play golf. I'm one of them, and I will say this. I'm not going on a golf course unless the golf carts are allowed. I, I just can't. I don't enjoy it like the walking. It's grueling. Those courses are so long, and it's so involved from a physical standpoint, just the toll that it takes on your body playing around the golf using a golf cart. I couldn't imagine playing 18 holes and having to walk, let alone playing four consecutive days, 72 holes at one of the hilliest golf courses that, that's on the PGA Tour. So for Tiger Woods – to take on this challenge the way that he is, I, I think that's representative of the individual, the person that we've come to know since he won his first Masters back in 1997. But this is a situation now where it's a different circumstance because we know how his body has, you know, taken a toll and, and had to have, you know, all the multiple surgeries over the past few years, the back fusion, the knee surgeries, and now the leg injury. Um, to, to see Tiger Woods take on this challenge it's a little bit different of an animal, but I'm excited to watch it nonetheless. I honestly don't understand why we do the no golf cart thing, but I'm no golf purist, right? I, do, I don't get it. Fine, it makes it all more grueling, and I guess there's some purity to it. But I feel like an exception should be made for Tiger Woods in this circumstance because it's remarkable to have Tiger back out there. Did you see the crowds, Chris Canty? Have you seen the pictures of him just from practicing at Augusta the mm -hmm. last few days. It is insane. You would think that the Masters has already started. That's the kind of draw that Tiger Woods is for practice. Yes, we are talking about practice, AI. <laughs> this is practice. Like It's unbelievable how popular Tiger Woods still is in that sport. And I don't just mean he's popular because, of course, he's you know the, the greatest or one of the greatest who's ever lived, and those guys are always popular and legends in their sport. I'm talking about the actual draw in modern day to watch him continue to play, not just because, hey, he's a legend, but because people are still so interested to see what he can do out there on the course after everything he's been through. Him getting back out there. I don't even care if he makes this weekend, Chris. Him uh -huh. just getting back out there and making it through those first two days, that's a top five moment for me in Tiger Woods' entire career, which is saying a lot for the career that Tiger Woods has had and a dude who's won five green jackets. Yeah, Amber, uh, there would be no question in my mind this would be the greatest comeback in Tiger Woods' career if he's able to go out there and play all four rounds over the course of this weekend. That would involve Tiger Woods making the cut, and as the guys in the production meeting earlier today pointed out on our show, he's minus 150 right now to make the cut. So the odds are that he's probably not going to make it, but the reality is that people are still going to tune in and watch Tiger Woods because we want to see if he can capture some of the greatness that we saw a glimpse of in 2019 when he was able to come back and win the Masters after not being one of the favorites in that weekend. We hadn't seen Tiger Woods play at that level in such a long time. And so folks want to see 
whether or not Tiger can go down to Augusta and, and, and channel some of that magic that we've seen him early on in his career have when he was able to be as dominant as any golfer has been on that course in the history of the game. And so people want to know, can he get that sixth green jacket to tie Jack Nicholas? He's three majors off of Jack Nicholas. He's got 15, Jack has got 18. Can he somehow capture some magic in his late 40s and, and be able to do that? Can he make a run at it? Can he break the tie with Sam Snead for overall PGA Tour wins? Those are the things that are going to rope folks in to watch Tiger Woods this weekend. And I'm not just talking about golf aficionados, Amber. I'm talking about fans, the, uh, fans all across the world, people that aren't necessarily even into sports. They'll tune in to watch the Masters this weekend because Tiger Woods is involved. I mean, I threw the question out there yesterday, and I'll say it again. How many people know the name of the number one ranked golfer in the world right now? Not Very a lot few. of people know Scotty Scheffler. They just don't. But everybody knows Tiger Woods, and everybody's got an opinion on Tiger Woods. And so I think that's what makes this Masters fascinating because we don't know what we're in store for from Tiger. But based on some of the things that we're hearing from Freddie Couples, who played a practice round with him yesterday on Augusta, or Rory McIlroy, who was out there in California playing and playing with him and saw the ball striking, all of those guys say that Tiger's golf game will not be the issue for Tiger Woods and whether or not he can compete this weekend. The issue will be whether he can hold up walking 72 holes over the course of four days. That will be the cart. biggest Give, that will be the golf. biggest issue that everybody's waiting to see. So that's give straight him a golf talk. cart so we can see him for all four days. Real quick, if you gave true serum to those guys, do they want Tiger? Do they want Tiger in the Masters? 90 other golfers. Do they want Tiger there? Because you're right, he's getting all the attention this week, no matter what happens. That's straight all talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract. No compromise. So will Tiger Woods win another major championship? That's what we want to hear from you on the Candy Call in line. Triple Eight say ESPN. That's eight 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 seven two nine three seven seven six. Coming up next, we got to get into the national championship game that we saw last night between Kansas and Carolina. But first, a word from Vivid Seats. With the safe return of live events, you can actually be there to catch all the action in person with Vivid Seats. That's right. Every alley-oop, every one-timer, every sideline grab can be experienced live. And with Vivid Seats Rewards, you can earn rewards like free tickets. All you have to do is collect stamps, redeem, and repeat. It's that easy. From the upper level to courtside, Vivid Seats has you covered for all the events that matter to you. So grab your tickets today and cheer on your favorite team from the stands. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, life happens live. Kansas, for the fourth time in school history, men's basketball national champions. This was a team that came out in the first four minutes of the second half and let North Carolina know that it wasn't going to go anywhere. It was going to fight, and fight it did. It had the heart of a champion tonight. The message, I mean, was obviously different. Coach was, he obviously challenged us, and, you know, he was amped up in there. But it was just a matter of us playing our game and executing in the second half. They wound up shooting 57% in the second half. It was just an amazing comeback for the Jayhawks. You're listening to Amber Wilson and Chris Canny on ESPN Radio and ESPN Plus. Right now, Amber, we have to go out to the Canny call-in line and bring on ESPN College basketball analyst LaFonzo Ellis. And, LaFonzo, we appreciate a few moments of your time. And going back to last night's game with Kansas and Carolina, what was the key for Kansas's comeback in the second half of that game? 
Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I, I thought that they established themselves right away in the second half in establishing David McCormick. They ran a little clear-out action, and then they ran a little uh, elbow screen, ball screen, to get Dewan Harris coming off that screen, and no one helped on the empty side, and they threw the lob up to David McCormick. And then in that very first defensive possession, they ratcheted up their defense. They got into and underneath the ball handlers, and what that does is that forces you further out on the floor, making your reversal passes so much longer. And so inch, uh, they ended up forcing North Carolina to have to play one-on-one off the dribble. That's really not their game. Forced them to take some tough shots and turnovers, which allowed them to be able to get out in transition and, you know, I, I've said all year long that I did not think that Kansas was a Final Four national championship caliber team without a healthy Remy Martin. And who comes to the rescue in the second half off the bench, Remy Martin, with 11 of his 14 points in the second half, including two huge threes from the right corner to give them some momentum going forward. So, LaFonso, that's what went right for Kansas. And you mentioned there some of the things that they forced UNC to do. UNC's backcourt with Love and R.J. Davis, uh, they struggled to find rhythm for the first time in this tournament. So there were times last night, of course, where UNC seemed off its game. If you had to narrow down one key that led to UNC losing this one, what would it be? What went wrong for them? They they just couldn't make shots, of course, in the second half. I think Caleb Love was 5 of 25 from the field, and he took the same shots that he took in the semifinal game. And so when they needed shots to be made, now granted, it was a, it was almost miraculous that they were in the game late when you consider the fact that Armando Baycott, you know, a guy who's now has 31 double-doubles, which ties with David Robinson all time, was on a hampered ankle and and we saw him actually get injured there late. And then all of a sudden, Brady Manick is having to guard David McCormick in the box. So with 125 to go, he gets an offensive rebound, splits two guys, shoots a uh, righty hook over his left shoulder. And then 25 seconds to go, they go straight to him with Brady Manick on him, makes another hook shot in the middle that pretty much sealed the game from there. Talking with ESPN college basketball analyst LaFonso Ellis on ESPN Radio and Earlier in the season, LaFonso, Bill Self came out and said that it's time for Kansas to get back to winning national championships. Well, I guess it's mm-hmm. mission accomplished. What does this win for Bill Self do for his overall legacy and for him continuing to, b- to build his program out in Kansas? Well, it's, it's the second national championship, and that puts him in rare air with uh, some of our coaches who are left coaching right now the game. Uh, it, for me, maybe having been around the game for as long as I have, uh, I, I'm not sure it does much more than that, but just gives him a next level of respect because Bill Self is one of the best coaches in all of college basketball and has been for a long time. And I just think, and it's interesting, as you look at this group, he only has one player that's a top 50 recruit uh, coming out of high school, and that's David McCormick. And so I think he did one of the uh, better coaching jobs that he's done in the history uh, of his career in coaching by taking this group who was an experienced group Uh, but missing one piece. He goes to the transfer portal, brings in a guy that brought a skill set that he didn't have on his existing group, and that's Remy Martin, his ability to be able to create his own offense off the dribble. He can knock down threes. He can get in the lane and make plays. And, of course, if you think about the pace that Kansas likes to play with, they love to push it on misses and makes, and what a weapon to have coming off the bench who delivered for them time and time again throughout the NCAA tournament, including the second half last night in the championship game. 
Lafonso Ellis on ESPN Radio with Amber Wilson and Chris Canty. Ochai Obaji, he his numbers weren't as gaudy last night as sometimes we've sure. seen them. But when Kansas couldn't mm-hmm. buy a bucket in the first half, he was leading yeah. all scorers in that first half. And of course, he wins uh, the Final Four Most Outstanding Player. How good is Ochai Obaji? He, he's phenomenal, and he'll be a first-round pick in this year's NBA draft. His ability to be – it's, it's funny because you go back and you look at him as a freshman. He's really an athletic slasher. Couldn't really shoot it from three. You could lay off of him a close short when the basketball was reversed, and yet he worked and worked and worked on this game to be one of the elite three-point shooters uh, in our game and can straight-line drive it to the right. And I thought one of the big plays that he made, there was a – scramble a turnover he gets out in transition Brady Manick is back he bumps him uh, gets to the uh, backboard lays it in and one and he just just roars and pumps his fist I thought that gave them some much needed energy also but you're talking about a guy who's made steadily improvement uh, each year that he was at Kansas shot about 37 percent from the three-point line last year 41 percent this year obviously led the uh, big 12 in scoring he's become a complete player and he can play both sides he's an excellent defender as well Ochai Baji, one of the best players in that game talking with Lafonso Ellis college basketball analyst for ESPN and Lafonso we were speculating as to whether or not Carolina fans would be okay with Hubert Davis and his group losing last night's game given how they bounced coach K in the semifinal game on Saturday, but just looking at the ACC in general with Coach K retiring and stepping down, is Duke still the preeminent program in that conference or does that now belong, that title now belong to Carolina? Forward. Uh, obviously, Hubert Davis has the momentum. He's coming in uh, <laughs> behind it, one of the best coaches in, in the history of our game. And remember, he took a lot of criticism early on because North Carolina fans have become accustomed to Roy Williams' style, two big bruising fours and fives who they played through the post, who dominated you on the offensive glass. Hubert Davis wanted to bring a system that's more fitted for the NBA, four-round, uh, one big with an emphasis on shooting. And, of course, they're a terrific shooting team. And when they struggled toward the middle part of the season, everyone was about to have his head. And then all of a sudden he, he had a meeting with his guys after a devastating loss, told them he loved them. And and told them they need to draw a line in the sand and begin to compete, particularly on the defensive end. And that, and that indeed they did. And for a first-year coach to be under that kind of scrutiny, coming in behind one of our legends and Roy Williams, to get all the way to the finals and within two minutes of, of hanging another national championship batter, he did a phenomenal job. And you look at Duke, on the other hand, uh, yes, Coach K is retiring, but John Shire's got the number one recruiting class in the country. I think he has three three of the top 10 guys coming out of high school. So both of those programs have led the ACC in the history of the ACC and even uh, having lost to just terrific coaches. I I think that balance of power is going to stay in the blue with uh, North Carolina and with Duke. All right. Well, who could have imagined Hubert Davis building a team around shooting? I wonder. Right. (laughs) he's pretty good himself (laughs) exactly exactly well Lafonso we appreciate a few minutes of your time we'll talk to you again soon my friend my pleasure thank you guys for having me on I appreciate it have a good day all right that's ESPN college basketball analyst Lafonso Ellis joining us on ESPN radio and Amber I I I think it was one of those games last night that uh 
People said it would be closely contested. I'm not quite sure that anybody could have anticipated Carolina getting on top of Kansas the way that they did and then Kansas walking them down in the second half. So we'll have more on that coming up next. And we'll also dive back into the question of whether or not Carolina knocking out Coach K in the Final Four was a consolation prize to last night's loss. You're listening to Amber Wilson and Chris Canny, ESPN Radio. Isn't it about being able to add more trophies to the trophy case? It's not just about beating Duke, right? What did the other night was a drop the mic on Duke. Don't come to me if you were Dukey trying to talk about what y'all can do because we stopped that the other night. Shutting down his career, that was awesome. ESPN Radio. This was a team that came out in the first four minutes of the second half and let North Carolina know that it wasn't going to go anywhere. It was going to fight, and fight it did. It had the heart of a champion tonight. They wound up shooting 57% in the second half. It was just an amazing comeback for the Jayhawks. Oh, we got to let this breathe a little bit, Amber. This is Amber Wilson and Chris Candy, ESPN Radio, ESPN Plus. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Get at us on the Candy call-in line, 888-SAY-ESPN. That's 888-729-3776. What are your expectations for Tiger Woods at the Masters this week, and will he win another major? But right now, Amber, we got to go out to the call-in line because Neil in Virginia has got something to say about the face of ACC basketball, and I got a feeling he's coming in high and tight at your boy, Neil. You're on ESPN Radio with Amber Wilson and Chris Canny. What up? I love you, CC. Big fan. Always been. But good Lord, how are you asking the question, who is the face of ACC? There's only one left, and his name is Tony Bennett. And there needs to be some respect put on that name. I love what Hugh did down at UNC this year. He's a heck of a coach, but we've got to put some respect on Tony Bennett's name. Hey, listen, I'm not trying to disrespect Tony Bennett. That's my coach. I love him. That's my alma mater. Always about the blue and orange. You know how I get down. But I also acknowledge that Virginia is not quite on the same level when we start talking about programs as Carolina or as Duke. It's just different with those two teams. You're talking about 11 national titles between the two programs. Virginia's good, but we're not at that level yet. So I I feel where you're coming from, Neil. I had to ask the question because it's my job to at least try to be objective in these situations. But Amber, come on, Virginia compared to Duke or Carolina, we got Not we got we we got we we can't get crazy with this thing, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I appreciate you and Neil support. I assume that might be Neil's alma mater as well. I so I appreciate y'all staying true to who you are, but you also can't be insane. <laughs> Virginia's not part of the same conversation, at least not right now. That doesn't mean that that program can't trend that direction. But unfortunately for y'all, Hubert Davis, man, he hasn't missed a beat there in North Carolina. Yeah, Tony Bennett is about four decades shy of what Coach K just did. So let's let's just chill out a little bit. But when it comes to the game that we saw last night, Amber, I think you and I were both surprised because we thought this was going to be a runaway by Kansas, and it absolutely was not that. It was anything but... I mean, after they jumped out to a 7-0 run, I thought, okay, here we go. This is what I expected. Kansas is going to dominate. But then Carolina just hung in there, hung in there, and you saw when they started going to the bench, when Kansas started going to their bench and subbing their guys out, the starters for Carolina were able to make a push. They were able to gain some momentum. And then we're talking about that team having a 15-point lead at halftime. And looking at the game at the break, 
I said, this might be a lead that's just insurmountable for Kansas or for any opponent just with how well this Carolina basketball team had been playing. And then they proceeded in the second half to play their worst half of any game in the NCAA tournament. And so I I guess from that aspect of it, I was a little bit surprised because at halftime I thought Carolina had the game in hand. I don't even want to focus on what Carolina did wrong, though, because I'm so impressed by what Kansas did right here and the tenacity that Kansas showed. And we saw it from them against Miami, but Miami is not Carolina in terms of talent. I mean, Miami is not at all what UNC had put out there. Miami's not the blue blood. Miami's not hasn't been there before, and they're not battle-tested in the same way. So even though Miami was up at the half on Kansas, it wasn't a double-digit lead, and it just wasn't the same in terms of the stakes. It didn't seem nearly as insurmountable as this did. And so for Kansas to be able to get this done under that pressure, and considering also we spent all yesterday talking about how UNC had all the momentum. And so not only did they... They have the momentum coming into this game, given that slow start, like you mentioned, but then they had the momentum heading into the second half. And you thought, man, this is just their season. This is just magic right here for Hubert Davis in his first year as a head coach. They're just riding high coming off of that Duke win. And this is just momentum carrying UNC through this whole time. And then Kansas did what you couldn't imagine Kansas doing, because frankly, nobody had done it in the history of this tournament before in terms of coming back from that large of a deficit in a national championship game. I'm so impressed by Kansas with the mental fortitude because you're talking about a one seed, Chris, who hadn't been tested all the way through. They hadn't been necessarily dealing with that. They were the deepest and most talented team in every matchup they faced. And sometimes that can bite you when you get down big. It didn't last night for the Kansas Jayhawks. Let's take a listen to Myron Metcalf, our college basketball reporter for ESPN, on what he thought the title game could be for Hubert Davis, how there could be a positive in the loss. Take a listen. I think long-term, losing last night was good for Hubert Davis. That's so much pressure to win in your first year. I mean, a few guys have done it. Tubby Smith did it at Kentucky. You have some other coaches across sports who did it early. It's just hard to sustain that. And I think beating Duke in Coach K's last game is going to last and affect his legacy for the rest of his career. And I think North Carolina fans are certainly disappointed, especially with the way they played in the first half. But I think the future is bright. I think that's what we saw in Hubert Davis. That is the true success of the Roy Williams. He put his own stamp on the program. But I actually think if you win in year one, that just adds to the weight of what's going to happen in the years ahead. Here's what I'll say to that, Amber. And I know you kind of alluded to that point a little bit yesterday. But if you're Hubert Davis in year one and you win the national championship and, oh, by the way, you beat Coach K in his final game in Cameron Indoor Stadium and you beat him in the first time these two programs meet in the NCAA tournament, you're probably talking about the shortest length of time before you get a contract extension on any coaching job in professional sports or in collegiate sports because that's what Carolina would have doled out to Hubert Davis had he finished the drill last night. So I don't necessarily buy that this is going to be a loss that's in the best interest of Hubert Davis long-term while he's stewarding the Carolina basketball program. I just don't understand that. The goal is to win championships, and beating Duke is a part of the journey in order to get to that point. And the fact that you didn't get it done after you had the kind of success you had late in the regular season and in the NCAA tournament, I think it's got to be a little bit of a letdown, especially given the fact that you were up by as many as 16 points in that game and you let Kansas snatch it away from you. 
I actually agree with Myron here, and I only agree with Myron depending on, I guess, what the future holds for Hubert Davis. But let's assume that he'll get back to this position again, or let's assume that that's he a big will assumption. That is a huge assumption. That is a huge assumption. And so, yes, if he spends the rest of his career, he never gets a national title for North Carolina, then we're all going to look back on this moment and we're going to think, man, he really needed that one in that first year that he got so close where he was in the position to win one and he was up on Kansas with a monster lead at the half. We will have that conversation in the future if he never gets back here. But if he gets close to this again, this will be the perfect scenario for Hubert Davis. Because if you set the bar too high, then the only way to go from here is down. And he actually still has something left to accomplish now during his tenure at North Carolina. But he's a made man for making it this far. He's a made man for ending Coach K's career and making it to a national championship in his first season in the sense that there were all sorts of questions about Hubert Davis and whether he was the right guy for the job. People were having that conversation even as we inched our way towards the tournament this year for North Carolina, who were disappointed to be an eight seed in this year's tournament and disappointed to be a double digit what they were 19th or 20th in the preseason polls I think entering this season and people were disappointed by the state of where Carolina was because of the expectations around that program but now he has quashed that entire conversation he has absolutely quashed all of those doubts that's best case scenario for Hubert Davis plus he still left himself something to accomplish in the future so now Carolina fans will be thrilled when in fact they do end up winning a national championship because there's still something to strive for rather than if he comes out next year and they don't get it done it's a massive letdown so according to Amber Wilson Hubert Davis is a made man for the Carolina Car Heels coming up next we'll find out whether or not she thinks Joel Embiid has made his case for the NBA MVP. That's next. You're listening to Amber Wilson and Chris Canning, ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio. Amber Wilson and Chris Canning on ESPN Radio and ESPN Plus. And Amber, there's a lot that we can point to as to what went wrong with the Brooklyn Nets season whether it was Kyrie Irving being unvaccinated and that leading to James Harden being disgruntled and wanting out. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, Steve Nash not necessarily handling the rotations the way that he should. Uh, but there's one player on the Brooklyn Nets that takes it upon himself and says his injuries was the reason why the season was being derailed by the Nets. Take a listen. To be honest, I feel like our season was derailed by my injury. So... Like, I'm not looking at it as, like, a, we're just not a good basketball team. Just, like, wasn't a lot of continuity with me not, me and Kyrie out the lineup. That's just what it is. When we all on the floor together, I like what we, what we got. Amber, that sounds good, but we all know that that's not the sole reason that the Brooklyn Nets are in 10th place in the Eastern Conference standings. It has more to do with Kyrie Irving not being vaccinated, not being available to be a full-time player and James Harden not being on this team. I think those are the primary reasons that we can look at the Brooklyn Nets and say that they're not where everybody expected them to be at the start of the season, which is at the top of the conference standings. Durant injured his knee on January 15th, and I love the idea that Kevin Durant is taking some of the responsibility for what's happened this season so far with the Brooklyn Nets because that's what superstars do, fine. But it ain't got nothing to do with the fact that you injured your knee on January 15th. It's got a lot to do with the fact that your other star, I don't like calling Kyrie a superstar, but your other star, he was not available for, you know, 
half the season and then some because of the vaccine mandate. It had everything to do with that other guy who was also a superstar who was on your roster before getting traded to Philly decided to quit on you down the stretch or whatever and milk that hammy a little bit more than he probably needed to and wasn't putting in max effort. So this is not on Kevin Durant. I like that Kevin Durant is saying the things and he's taking responsibility, I guess, in that respect and blaming his injury. And of course, they're much better when both of those guys are out there. And he did mention Kyrie's availability in that conversation. It's it. I mean, there's no disputing that they're better when both of those guys are out there. But the real problem with the Nets this season certainly has not been KD and it hasn't been KD's durability. No, it hasn't. And Amber, I know you're a big Miami Heat fan. I think Jimmy Butler's played in what, 55 games? Mm-hmm. And the Miami Heat are tops in the Eastern Conference standings. Kevin Durant has played in 51 games. I, I understand that his injury may impact the Nets a little more than Jimmy Butler's injury, but still, the best player on the team for the Heat was injured, and they didn't fall off a cliff, unlike what we saw from the Brooklyn Nets. ESPN Radio. What are realistic expectations for Tiger Woods at the Masters, and where would this return rank on Tiger Woods' list of accomplishments all time. That's what we want to hear from you on the Candy Caller Line, 888-ESPN-888-729-3776. And we'll get into that with our very own Michael Eves at the top of the 4 o'clock hour. But right now, Amber, we got to get into Joel Embiid because it's not often that you have an MVP frontrunner trying to make his case as to why he should be the MVP over all of the other candidates That includes Nikola Jokic from the Denver Nuggets, of course, Giannis and Tenacupo. All of those guys are vying for the MVP trophy for this regular season, and yet Joel Embiid is not shy about telling the fans and the voters exactly what he wants. Here's Joel Embiid on what he thinks he needs for the MVP to be his. Take a listen. If it happens, great. Uh, If it doesn't, I, I don't know what I had to do at this point. Uh, you know, at this point, I feel like, you know, I'm, uh, they hate me. So the standard for, you know, guys in Philly or for me is different than the standard than everybody else. Amber, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I mean, Joel Embiid has put together an unbelievable season. And for the majority of this season, he's been the front runner for the MVP award. Fans and media members have been showing him the love. So why does he think everybody is hating on him because he plays for the 76ers? The 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 standard for Philly is different than every Philly like boss, you're not in the market that gets overlooked here. You're not you're not on the team that gets Whoa. overlooked here. In fact, <laughs> you're Did you just take a shot at Philadelphia, Amber? No, I'm saying you're not in the market. Like you're not the team that gets overlooked. The Denver Nuggets everybody sleeps on, right? Yes, no doubt. Nobody isn't paying attention to the Philadelphia 76ers. Fair point. So okay. that's what I don't understand about Embiid's position here, where he's saying, well, if you know, if you play in Philadelphia, the standards dip. No, the standard for MVP I would argue is harder for Jokic in a much smaller market on a team that often gets overlooked. All the attention is on you and everything you're doing in Philadelphia. And because of that, you have been the front runner for the MVP the majority of the season. We all know how great Joel Embiid has been. By the numbers, though, Jokic is better. It's just not comparable. And frankly, he's been better all season. It's not even a knock on Embiid. It's just that Jokic has been doing just 
unworldly things. Like he ranks in the top 10 in points, rebounds, assists per game, field goal percentage. It's something no other player has done in a season in over the last 50 years. He's recorded over a thousand touches, over 600 passes, more than any other NBA player in the entire league. Jokic is is next level and he's having a better season than even last season when he won it so is Giannis by the way and Giannis has entered this conversation Giannis who's of course won an MVP award is actually better now and better this season than when he had the MVP both of those guys have gotten tremendously better which is scary because both of those guys are remarkable players now Joel Embiid is also amazing yes and because of the attention that Joel Embiid gets and the 76ers get because he is a massive superstar in this league and because nobody's overlooking the Philadelphia 76ers he has actually been the odds-on favorite for a large portion of the season but if you pull the metrics it just doesn't hold up so I guess the answer to Joel Embiid's question what do I have to do to win MVP I don't know apparently you have to be Jokic because boss he's a little bit better in all the categories than you well I'll say this Amber I think numbers tell a part of the story but they don't tell the entire story and if you look at everything and take into account the entire context, the full picture. I think what Philadelphia has been dealing with, with the distraction of Ben Simmons throughout the offseason and early on in the regular season, the first half of this year before James Harden um, came over to the Sixers, I think what Joel Embiid did for that team and being able to stabilize that franchise and be able to give them something that they could depend on night in and night out with so much uncertainty about the future of the other cornerstone piece that was supposed to be a part of the process, that part is understated when it comes to the narrative about who should win the MVP trophy. Now, if you look at Embiid's record, his team's record in comparison to Giannis's team's record, it's the exact same. And they've got mm-hmm. one more win than the Denver Nuggets. So, and Giannis is, and, and not Giannis, and Joel Embiid is leading Giannis in scoring average by just a shade. And so, If Joel Embiid is able to pull this off and win a scoring title, I think that does change the perception of who deserves the MVP. I get that from an efficiency rating standpoint. Nikola Jokic, his numbers are better than Giannis. They're better than Embiid's. But at the same time, I'm also taking into account the distractions and all of the things that Joel Embiid has had to try to endure in order to get his team to be a top four seed in the Eastern Conference and really be a game and a half away from being the number one overall seed. So I just... I, I I lean toward Embiid depending on how he finishes this week, the end of the regular season. If he finishes strong, I think there's a case to be made that Embiid should win the MVP. But the one thing I will say, Amber, is I don't like guys coming out and making the case or campaigning to win MVP. Let your play speak for whether or not you deserve the award. Let all of the fans, let all of the media members talk about it. I don't need you coming out front and center and saying, I deserve this award, and if I don't get it, I don't know what I need to do and throw your hands up. No, there's always more you can do to make the case. I would just prefer that you do your talking on the court as opposed to through the media. I don't have a huge problem with him campaigning, frankly, because he's also got one of those personalities, and I find it fun. I don't have a huge problem with him campaigning. I just think he has to have some semblance of self-recognition here. He has been playing phenomenally, but there's two other dudes who have been playing also phenomenally this season. And I think Jokic, frankly, I mean, it depends how you rate MVP, right? But you take Jokic off that Nuggets team, what are they? Yes, Embiid has definitely dealt with adversity this season, but that's a better 76ers team surrounding him. Well, it's a better 76ers team now. I don't know if you could have made that case before they traded for James Harden because Ben Simmons was a net 
zero. He wasn't around this entire season. So I, I don't know if you can you can definitively say that. But coming up next, Tiger on the prowl in Augusta. We'll get into it. Amber Wilson, Chris Canny.